quite how many thousands of people were in that vast multitude that's mentioned there in Mark chapter 3 in verses 7 and 8 and 9, we'll never know. But when you consider the places that are named, which cover most of Palestine and even beyond, you quickly get a sense of the considerable reputation that Jesus has gained. And all by word of mouth. Who needs Twitter, Facebook and Instagram? Everyone's heard of him. Everyone's flocking to see him. And yet something of great weight is made clear in those verses. There are many in this crowd who are keen to follow Jesus. But they're not his disciples. And they never will be. There are many who are wanting a quick fix for their current situation today. But they're not really thinking about eternity. There are many who are making demands that Jesus should do something for them and serve their purposes. But they have no intention or desire of doing something for him or of serving him. There are many in that crowd who are only in it for themselves. They're not really in it for Christ. And despite all of that, we see that Jesus deals with this vast multitude with great compassion. One area of biblical doctrine which is misunderstood by many people, including many Christians, is that God does not love all people the same. Maybe you think he does. He doesn't. And God's love is not unconditional. You'll often hear it said that it is, but it isn't. Now, that Jesus deals with this vast horde of people with such kindness is a demonstration of that gracious benevolence which God shows to all of humanity without exception. In the same way that Jesus taught on the Sermon on the, Sermon on the Mount that God's people should love their enemies because to do that is to imitate God. God who causes the sun to rise on both the evil and the good. The God who sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus accepts the sick and the dying to heal them. And in that there is evidence of what we might sometimes refer to as his common grace. His good will that he has for all people, even in their sins. This is a type of love which God extends to all, even though and even while his anger is burning hot against their wickedness. That God can show such grace to the wicked is a great mark of just how loving and long-suffering he is. But do bear in mind that because God sends the rain on the unjust as well as the just, that does not mean that he's gone soft on sin. 
nor does it mean that his love is the same for everyone. There is indeed in God's love a depth and a constancy and a faithfulness and a patience which is quite staggering. But to conclude from that that God loves everyone the same and completely unconditionally would be quite wrong. Because from out of this vast crowd, Jesus is going to call, in verse 13, those he himself wanted. And for these, he has a special love, which he does not have for the vast multitude. Many in that crowd will never know the love that Christ has for his own special people. Those who are his sheep. Those for whom he will lay down his life. They'll never know that love. They'll never experience it. And that love is not unconditional. For one thing, for Christians to be able to know that love... Christ would have to suffer and die and be buried and rise again the third day in order that you can know that love. For Christians to know and experience that love, lost sinners will need the vital energies of the Holy Spirit to bring to them new birth and knowledge and faith and repentance from their sins and to have their minds and lives transformed. Jesus taught that those who, in and through himself, discover this love that God has for them, they will love him in return. And they will live lives of godly, joyful, faithful obedience. When you love me, said Jesus, you'll keep my commandments. There are certain things which God's love demands and requires. That, after all, is what we've just seen in the Old Testament. And when the people disobeyed God's requirements, he moved against them in anger. God's love is not unconditional. You can't say, great, God loves me, now I can do whatever I want. I can worship him however I like and however I choose. We've seen the results of that in the Old Testament. We see the results of that in the New Testament with Ananias and Sapphira, who dropped down dead in front of the church. Because God's love is not unconditional. Yet at the same time, salvation for sinners is offered as a free gift from a God of immeasurable love. All that by way of introducing verses 13 to 19. Because from out of that vast crowd of people, Jesus calls those who will be his disciples. And I want to highlight three lessons this morning. Are you a follower of Christ? Would you be a follower of Christ? Lesson number one. All of Christ's disciples are called people. Called people. Jesus called they came. 
Now, again, we don't know how many, but Luke's account of the same event makes it clear that there were more than 12 who were called initially, and that from out of that larger group of disciples, Jesus appoints the 12 who are named for us. But all of them, the whole group that was initially called out of the crowd, they were called by Jesus. They were the ones he chose because they were the ones he wanted. That is the word of scripture. And here is a glorious doctrine of salvation that any man, woman, boy or girl who is a Christian is only a Christian because God in Christ has called you to himself. From out of the world, Jesus has called you if you're a Christian believer. We read much of this calling in the apostles' letters in the New Testament. Listen to some of the things that are said. Called to be saints, the called of Jesus Christ, called according to his purpose, called in the Lord and in the grace of Christ, called to peace and to liberty, called in one hope, in one body, by the gospel, called with a holy calling to be separate and to be different, called into the fellowship of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, called out of darkness into his marvellous light, called to receive the promise of the eternal inheritance to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. What a calling it is. What a call you've received if you're a Christian this morning. In that vast multitude, Christ had his own and he called them out and he's calling still. If you're a Christian, you've been called out by Christ. I sometimes hear people ask this question. Why aren't more people being saved? Or, what can we do so that more people will be saved? (coughs) Question, what do you mean by more? What do you mean by more? Why didn't Jesus call more out of that crowd? He chose the ones he wanted. Why didn't he choose more? There weren't any more that he wanted. He called those he wanted. He called those he foreknew. He called those for whom he came. He called those whom the Father had given him. He called those who, before time began, he had chosen and set his love upon and purposed to come into the world and die for that he might save them. And of those whom the Father has given him, he will save all and he will lose none. So what do you mean when you ask why aren't more being saved? All that are destined to be saved will be saved. Christ will call all those who are his out of the world to himself. However, having said all that, those who ask that kind of question 
out of a heartfelt compassion for the lost and with a desire to see Christ glorified. Well, the Lord bless you nevertheless if that is your zeal. And oh, that we all had that same zeal for the lost, that we would see more saved because we want Christ to gather in all of his own. But do you also see the great assurance this is in our work of proclaiming the gospel? We've been called by the gospel, says the word of God. This wonderful message and truth is God's means of calling in his people. This is how Christ today calls to himself those he wants. And he does it still. So pray and proclaim and Christ will call. And you can all pray, can't you, if you're a Christian? And you can all proclaim. Now, not for all is standing at a pulpit. Not for all is standing preaching in the street. Not for all is knocking on people's doors. But for all is proclaiming Christ in word and by your actions by the things that you say and by the way that you say them, by the things that you refrain from saying and the things that people never hear off your lips, by the manner of your conduct and the testimony of your character, you can proclaim Christ by giving an account of the hope that is in you. You do have hope in you, don't you? Can you not tell others? Or you can give people a gospel tract. You can invite people to come to the church's meetings and activities where you know they'll hear the gospel being proclaimed. You can all pray. You can all proclaim Christ. And he will call his own. Called people. And secondly we see that they are communing people. They came to him, verse 13, that they might be with him, verse 14. Now that is said specifically of the 12 and especially of the 12, but it's true for everyone who's a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Being with Christ. That was one of the qualifications that was laid down for the man who would replace Judas Iscariot as an apostle. One who's been with us, with Christ. Before the twelve were sent out, what did they need? More than anything else, they needed to spend time with Christ. That they might be with him. That's what you need too. That's what I need what will make you more effective in proclaiming Christ? Well, knowledge of various topics can be a great help. And for many Christians, one of their great fears in evangelizing is that they'll be asked a question and you don't know the answer. Shouldn't really stop you, but it is a fear that we all have, let's face it. But when it comes to being effective in evangelism, there's something which many Christians completely overlook and it makes all the difference in the world. 
And it's you spending time with Christ. To know him. To love him. And to commune with him. To grow your relationship with him. You see, the more time you spend with him, the better you'll be able to speak of him. The better you know him, actually the less fearful you will be of those awkward questions. Because your trust is in Christ. The more confident you are in him, the more you will make him the topic of your conversation. The story is told of the great 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon who was out preaching at another church. I've told this before. He preached in the morning and one of his elders who's accompanied him didn't think that his preaching was up to his usual standard. Well, we've all been told that before. And his elder told him, what did Spurgeon do to try and get things right for the evening? Did he go away and rewrite his notes? No. Did he rehearse and sharpen up all the arguments that he was going to use to put everyone right in their thinking? No. Did he think of some better illustrations he could use? No. He took himself off to the nearby woods and he spent the whole afternoon there and he opened up his soul to Christ in prayer and he wrestled and communed with Christ. He spent time with Christ. And then he went back to the church and he preached. And what does his church elder make of the evening sermon? That's more like it, Mr. Spurgeon. He'd spent time with Christ. People are not won to Christ by those who know the answers to all their arguments. People are won to Christ by those who know their saviour. That's the secret. You need to spend time with Christ. You need to abide in Christ. Through the word and in prayer. And it takes time. And it takes devotion. And it takes purpose. And there are no shortcuts. And there's no substitute. Study the lives of the giants of the faith throughout church history. And you'll discover various common threads in all of their lives. And one of the most obvious is the amount of time that they spent in prayer and in the word. You'll discover that many of them rose in the early hours of the morning to spend time in personal devotion with Christ in the word and in prayer. And you might say, ah, but they were able to do that because they were giants of the faith. No, they became giants of the faith because they did that. They came to him that they might be with him. You and I have exactly the same need. Thirdly, they were common people. 
They were common people. I came across a letter during this last week. I'd like to read it to you. Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the CVs of the men you've picked for managerial positions in your new organisation. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. We've not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each one of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included and you'll want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. It's the opinion of the staff that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau and James, the son of Alpheus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. Of the candidates, however, one shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well, has a keen business mind, has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, he's ambitious, and he's responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. We wish you every success in your new venture. What an uninspiring bunch these 12 men were. Christian friends, you must remember and take great encouragement from the fact, as I do, that God does not choose people like the world chooses people. He doesn't. God does not evaluate people like the world evaluates people. God does not rate people the way the world rates people. God doesn't see people the way the world sees people. God doesn't require the kind of people the world thinks is necessary. The world places a high premium on outward aesthetics and appearance, on style and quality of presentation, a certain look, a certain sound, a certain type of delivery. The world places premium on rank and status and background and on wealth and success. There's a grave danger and a great temptation to suppose that such things are important to have in the church if the gospel is to run with success. These 12 men who Jesus chose shows us precisely that that is not the case. Such things feature nowhere in this group of 12 who he elects to be his preachers and apostles and we must resist any temptation to wake worldly, aesthetic things 
to be important in the life of the church and especially in the gospel. In the fourth chapter of Acts, Peter is preaching to, to the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling Jewish council in Jerusalem. And he concludes with that much-loved verse, Nor is there salvation in any other name, for there's no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. And then Luke records for us this response by the leaders of the Jewish nation. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. You see, these were not men about who you would say they look the part. But what exactly is a gospel preacher supposed to look like anyway? Apparently, according to a Jewish historian of the day, the Apostle Paul was a most ungainly, odd-looking man with bloodshot eyes, bandy legs, and a very hooked nose. Looking the part? Peter and John were not men about whom you would say, they sound the part. These men were Galileans, for crying out loud. Wrong location, wrong background, wrong pedigree, wrong everything. These men ought not to be able to speak like this. And there's something rather unnerving hearing men speak like this. Who they are, where they're from, how they look, the accent they're speaking with. These things don't match what they've just said. And then this is said of those Jewish leaders next and they realized that they had been with Jesus that's what lay behind Peter and John these are men who do not have do not need any of the things that the world would say are the requirements. But they have this, and this is all that matters. They have been with Jesus. That's what marks these men out. It's Christ who is making the difference in these men. Christ has gifted them. Christ has enabled them. Christ has emboldened them. Christ has given them the words to speak. These most unlikely candidates, men who the world would never have shortlisted, these are the men who Christ has called and is using. Paul reminded the Corinthian church, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. There were many who heard in the open air yesterday, many who heard in Chester last week, many who heard on the doors during the week, the message of the cross, and to them it was utter foolishness as they perish in their sins. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? 
Where is the disputer of this age? In other words, where are those who look and sound the part? God hasn't chosen to use them. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Now we live in an unsaved world that thinks it's very wise. We lived in an unsaved world which is very pleased with itself in all that it's been deciding in these last few years on things like diversity and same-sex marriage and all these gender issues. And they're very, very pleased with themselves. Thank you very much. The world, through wisdom, the one thing they won't do is ever know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The foolishness of the message. Remember this. It is not our job to try and make the gospel sound less foolish. It's through the foolishness of the message that men and women get saved. Because it's God at work. You see your calling, brethren, says Paul, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus. That's what matters. Who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Who are Christians? Called people. Called by Christ through his gospel. Communing people. Communing with Christ by the word and spirit and in prayer. Common people. Praise God. Nothing special. Nothing remarkable. Nothing noteworthy. And with such as these, God can turn the world upside down. And with such as these, Christ is building his church. Are you one of them? <laughs>